All right, well, it's, uh, it's very good to be with you today as we, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, how your origins matter. That's what we really are all about at the Institute for Creation Research. I want to show you why it is that we do what we do, really. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that the origins debate is kind of a secondary issue or even a tertiary issue. Who cares, right? It's, what's important is that we trust in Jesus, and of course that is the most important thing. But many people think that origins is a side issue and that it doesn't really matter. And what I want to show you today is that your origins really do matter. It makes a difference whether or not you're descended from an ape or whether you're made the way that the Bible says, whether you're, whether you're made in the image of God, as the Bible teaches. I want you to consider the United States of America. We have the most churches, the most seminaries, most Christian colleges, Christian bookstores, Christian radio and television of any nation. And yet for all these Christian resources, would you say we're becoming more Christian every day or less Christian every day? Less. Less. Yeah, everywhere I go people say that. It certainly seems that way. How is it that for all of these Christian resources, a nation founded primarily by Christians on Christian principles, all of these Christian resources available, how is it that we're becoming a pagan nation? What is going on? And is this connected with origins? And I want to suggest that it is. You see, all of these problems that we're having in our society today are connected with origins, and the real issue is the same. It's this issue. It's God's word versus man's word. That's really what all these issues come down to, including origins. Are we going to trust what God has said in his word, or are we going to reject this and try and determine truth for ourselves? That's really what the issue is. And that begins in Genesis, when actually historically it began in Genesis, because God created Adam and Eve, and he told them, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die, indicating they would become mortal that very instant, which of course they, they did. They disobeyed God. They decided, we're not going to listen to your word, we're going to determine truth for ourselves. And they eat from that tree, and God was right, and they were wrong, and they're dead today as a result of that. You see, I want to suggest to you that the loss of biblical authority is the root of the decline of Christian America. We're descended from Adam. We have that same sin nature. We want to reject what God has said in his word. We want to accept what man says about origins and about other things as well. I want to suggest to you that people have lost confidence in the Bible as the word of God. And that really is why we have all these problems in society. Every problem in our world can be traced back to a broken law of God. Every single one can be traced back to that. All these problems that we have in society are where somebody has said, you know what, we're going to listen to God's word. We're going to determine truth for ourselves. They follow in Adam's footsteps, so to speak. And we have all these problems. And they they think they can do that because they think the Bible isn't trustworthy. And what is the most attacked and ridiculed book of the Bible? It's got to be Genesis. That's the one where people say, well, you can't trust that God really created organisms like that. We know millions of years of evolution is the way that life came about. That's what students are taught in virtually all public schools. Frankly, a lot of Christian schools teach that. They teach that God used evolution somehow. But uh, that, is, that is man's word about how life came about. And that's what I mean when I talk about evolution. I'm not, sometimes the word evolution can just mean change. And of course, we all agree that things change a bit. That's not in question. I'm talking about this idea that all life is descended from a common ancestor over millions of years. And so in the evolutionary view, you are related to broccoli. And uh, that's, what they, that's what they claim. It's interesting. I, I was actually speaking to a group of atheists one time, and I mentioned that. I said, you know, in, in your worldview, you're, you're related to broccoli. And one guy afterwards came up to me, and he said, weren't, weren't you kind of making fun of us by, by saying that, you know, that we're related to broccoli? And I said, well, isn't that what you believe? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, there you go then. Right? I mean, 
If it sounds strange, maybe you ought to reconsider your belief. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reflecting back to you what you claim to believe. But anyway, I don't believe we're biologically related to broccoli. Uh, We are related to each other, of course, because we're descended from Adam. What you believe about origins will have consequences. If creation is true, if the Bible's true, then of course creation's true, we would expect to have laws because there's a lawgiver. That makes sense. I have a reason to behave in the fashion that God has prescribed in Scripture, right? Because God's going to hold me accountable. Judgment day is coming. God has made me in his image and he's given me certain commands and I'm, I'm obligated to obey God's commands and if I don't, there are consequences for that. So of course we have laws. It makes sense in a creation worldview. Where does the idea of marriage come from? The idea that, that you know, one man and one woman united by God for life, where does that idea go back to? It goes back to Genesis. God created the family unit and he did it in Genesis. That's where he made them, male and female. And so God gets to define what marriage is. It's his creation. He gets to define it, not the Supreme Court, by the way. God defines what marriage is. And that makes sense in a creation worldview. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. Um, Well, why is that? Well, it it wasn't that way originally, but because of sin, God provided the covering uh, for our shame, a symbolic covering, really. We understand that. It goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? Or meaning of life. Why is it that human life is so valuable, so sacred, and different from animal life, right? I mean, you can, or, or, or plants for that matter. I mean, you can eat a plant and nobody gets upset, but you certainly wouldn't want to eat a person. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? Now, why is that? Why is it we're different from animals? Oh, it's because we're made in the image of God. Animals are not. And where do we learn that? Genesis. Yeah, all these things go back to Genesis. Every major Christian doctrine you can think of has its foundation in the book of Genesis. But you see, if evolution's true, then you'd have a counterfeit set of standards. If evolution's true, why would you have laws? Because evolution is supposed to be about the strong dominating over the weak in the competition for survival. But laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong. Laws are anti-evolutionary by their very nature. Why not do what you want with sex, for that matter? If we're just animals, animals kind of do what they want, what's instinctive, why shouldn't we? Or abortion, for that matter. Get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. What's the difference if we're just animals? You see my point? These concepts make sense in an evolutionary worldview. These concepts make sense in a creation worldview. Now, I am not suggesting that evolution is the cause of all these problems. Sin is the cause of all those problems. I get that. But I am suggesting that evolution gives people a way of justifying that sin in their minds. Because if creation isn't true, then why should we define marriage that way and so on? And this is, that's not a hypothetical issue, is it? Because we've seen in our culture what's happened is that foundation is gone in the minds of many people. They think, well, you can't believe creation anymore. You know, the science supports evolution. That's what they claim. It's not true, but that's what they claim. The science proves evolution, allegedly. And so, well, then why would you have, why would you have to obey the Ten Commandments and so on? If we're not really made in the image of God, why, why thou shalt not kill? Why? And, and marriage. Why should marriage be one man and one woman for life if we're not really descended from Adam and Eve? If that's just a story that somebody made up and it's fictional, you know, why, why should we hold to it? It's not just a hypothetical issue, is it? You show me somebody who doesn't believe that marriage is one man and one woman for life, and I'll show you someone who doesn't believe in Genesis. Because once you have the history of Genesis, marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's not a hypothetical issue. That's happening in our culture today. 
People think Genesis is just a myth and therefore marriage is just a cultural trend and the culture changes. Why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? That's exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. Jesus understood this. In his earthly ministry, Jesus often quoted or alluded to Genesis in some form. In Matthew 19, when the religious leaders were quizzing Jesus about divorce, to explain marriage, Jesus went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2. Isn't that interesting? And he quoted it like he believed it, like it was real history. He understood that was the foundation for marriage. You see, a lot of Christians think, well, I don't have time to worry about, you know, creation versus evolution, Dr. Lau, because we have all these problems in our society. Marriage is under attack, and we've got bad laws on the books, and so on. There's a connection. People have lost confidence in Genesis, in creation, and as a result, all these other symptoms happen. We need to recognize that our foundations are under attack, and if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We get intimidated very easily, don't we? A lot of Christians think, well, maybe evolution's true and God used evolution somehow, and maybe Genesis, because after all, that's what the scientists believe, right? And I will grant that most scientists believe in evolution. I understand that, but there are a lot of us, I have a PhD in science, I don't hold to evolution. There's a lot of us that don't. Uh, in any case, Christians get intimidated and think, well, there's, there's smart people that believe in evolution, and so maybe that's the way God did it. Maybe Genesis is just an allegory or a parable or poetic literature. But Genesis isn't written in those styles. Genesis is written in the historical narrative, the way that the Jews recorded their history. And you know that, right? You, you know those verses that you love to read before you go to bed? And so-and-so begets so-and-so and they beget so-and-so. You know those genealogies like you find there in Genesis 5? Well, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us that this is real history. These are real people that lived, and it tells us their names and the names of at least one of their sons and sometimes the, the time span between, uh, between the birth of their son and so on. Uh, well, that's real history. That, now, that's not the way a parable is written. I understand that the Bible sometimes uses parables. Jesus sometimes spoke in parables. But it's, it's pretty obvious when he's doing that. It's a parable is where you take something that we're all familiar with, something that's physical, and you relate it to something that's spiritual to make sense of, of the latter using the former. And Jesus was very good at speaking in that way. It's not the way. This isn't the way a parable is written. Parables don't have genealogies. Usually they don't even have specific names. It's just there was a certain man or there was a certain king and, and so on. And you wouldn't have a list of genealogies in a parable. That would be pointless. That wouldn't make any sense. And I recognize the Bible contains poetic literature. It does, like in the Psalms. Even many of the Proverbs are written in a poetic way. They're not meant to be pushed in a hyper-literal sense. When the Psalms talk about you know, God is a rock, it doesn't mean he's literally like igneous or basalt or something, right? We understand that. We understand the Bible uses figures of speech and has poetic literature. But is Genesis poetic literature? Not at all. I mean, think about it. That would be a terrible poem, wouldn't it? <laughs> so-and-so begets so-and-so. That doesn't even rhyme. That's terrible. By the way, Hebrew poetry is, not, is, is very easy to recognize. It's not like English poetry that's based on rhyme and meter. Hebrew poetry is based on parallelism, where you say something and then you say the same thing using different words, the same basic idea using different words. So um, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. kind of says the same thing using different words, doesn't it? That's parallelism. It's very easy to recognize Hebrew poetry. Genesis doesn't have it. It's just not there. And it's even more obvious if you know something about Hebrew grammar and the, the frequent use of the Vav consecutive and so on. I won't go into that. My point is, it's very clear that Genesis is literal history. And that's the way it's meant to be read. See, but Christians get intimidated and they think, well, it can't be history because, hey, all those scientists say 
millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. And so they said, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I think Adam is just a metaphor containing certain spiritual truth. But you know, the Bible indicates Jesus is descended from Adam. Yeah, and you can get the complete genealogies there by reading uh, various sections of the Bible, including the Gospels of uh, uh, Matthew and Luke. And so here's my question then for Christians who compromise and say, well, I'm a Christian, I believe Jesus is a real person, died and rose again. Praise God, I'm glad you do. But then they say, but I think Adam's just a metaphor. But wait a minute, Jesus is descended from Adam. You're saying Jesus is descended from a metaphor? That doesn't make any sense, does it? A real person can't be descended from a fictional person. (laughs) That's not gonna work, that makes no sense. It is theologically important that Jesus Christ is descended from a literal Adam And so are you and I. You know why? Because that makes Jesus our relative. Yeah, and why? you say, well, why is that important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can save you. There's this concept in biblical law of the kinsman redeemer. Christ is our kinsman redeemer, which means he's our relative. That's why his blood can count for us on the cross, because he's our relative. We're all of one blood, the Bible says, meaning we're all related, Okay. That's why the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, the Bible says in Hebrews uh, 10.4. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the blood of bulls and goats was used as a symbol for the Messiah to come, right? We understand that. But it can't actually take away sins because we're not related to animals. Oh, unless, of course, evolution's true, in which case that Christian doctrine is gone. You see, even the gospel message goes back to Genesis. Where do we learn that death is the penalty for sin? Genesis is where we learn that. That's, and so it's, it, that's why Christ needed to die on the cross in order to redeem us, to pay for our sins. Putting it another way, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved? Or is it the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who made it possible for us to be saved? You see, without the first Adam, the last Adam makes no sense. What are we being saved from? Maybe you've witnessed to somebody and you've said, you know, you need to trust in Jesus. And have you ever had the response, well, I don't think I need Jesus. I'm basically a good person. I've heard people say that. Yeah. You see, somebody like that doesn't understand Genesis or doesn't believe it. Because if you understand Genesis, you recognize, no, wait a minute. According to Genesis, how many sins did it take to ruin the world? One. One sin ruined it. Now, God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. They're going to remain perfect forever. But wait a minute. That means not one sin can come into them. And we've all sinned. Some of us twice, three times even, right? Yeah. We can't, we ruin that new heavens and new earth the way Adam ruined the original. That's a problem, you see. See, God's infinitely holy. And so one sin is is sufficient to uh, ruin perfection. I mean, it's a perfect world. One imperfection ruins that, of course. And so that's the problem. That's why we need a savior, you see. But somebody who doesn't understand Genesis, who doesn't understand the holiness of God, says, well, I'm basically a good person. No, no, no. You've got to take him back to Genesis. By what standard do you think you're good? Have you broken God's commandments? Of course, we all have. You see, the Bible really is the history book of the universe. It contains other types of literature, but it's mainly a history book. It records the important events that have happened in terms of our relationship to God throughout history. And I found that people want to believe the moral teachings of the Bible for the most part, but they want to reject the history because they get intimidated by the secular scientists who tell them they have to believe in evolution and millions of years and so on. Oh, even atheists like a lot of the morality the Bible teaches. 
Thou shalt not steal. Yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, thou shalt not murder. All that. Yeah, that's got. Yeah, the Bible got that one right too. Even atheists like those, but they want to reject the history the Bible teaches. But you see, you can't separate the two because the morality comes out of the history. Why is it wrong to murder? Because people are made in the image of God, historically. You see, it goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? If Genesis isn't true and we're just bags of chemicals that happen by accident, it makes no sense why, there sh- why I should be morally obligated to not kill a bag of chemicals. That makes no sense. Christian doctrines are based on the history in Genesis. They go back there. Jesus put it like this. He said, I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That was a very pointed question that he was asking Nicodemus. And uh, it's, it, it, of course, it's a great question, isn't it? The Bible does talk about earthly things, think matters of history, things like the days of creation, the global flood at the time of Noah. And the Bible also talks about heavenly things, morality, salvation, But if you say, yes, but I don't think I believe that God really created, not literally, the way the Bible says. And I'm not sure there really was a global flood. You know, I think that's just symbolic or something. Hey, if God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? Maybe that needs to be reinterpreted too. You see the problem? People say, oh, but I believe those parts. But you see, it's it's the same book, isn't it? Does God know how to write a book or doesn't he? Can he write a book that can be understood by his creations that he made in his image? I think he can. I think if God can create a universe, he can probably write a book. (laughs) I've written books. It's not that hard. I think if God can create a universe, he can write a book that's clearly understandable. But we get intimidated. You got God's infallible word and man's fallible word. Why do people change the infallible one when they want the two to agree? Why change the infallible to match the fallible? And by the way, the one you modify is the one you don't really have your faith in, ultimately, right? Because if you really trusted the Bible as God's word, you wouldn't modify it to fit some other standard because there is no greater standard than God's word. But we get intimidated and we think, well, no, it doesn't really mean that God created that way. That's symbolic for God used evolution somehow or God created over millions of years and, and what have you. It doesn't really mean, Genesis doesn't really mean what it says. Well, this is not the way that Jesus responded in his earthly ministry when the religious leaders came to him and they had twisted God's word. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees were masters at that. They could take the Bible and pull out meanings that are not there and insert meanings that are not there and so on. How did Jesus respond to the distortions of his word? Did he respond with modern political correctness? Like, you know, well, that's not my personal opinion, but if you want to believe that, that's okay. He didn't respond that way, did he? Or, or did he say, you know, well, it's, um, you know, it's not a salvation issue, so let's, let's agree to disagree and just all hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? He didn't respond that way, did he? Jesus always responded with phrases like, it is written, have you not read? Isn't that interesting? It's interesting on a number of levels. First of all, it's interesting because you, you, you understand when, when Jesus says, have you not read, to the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious experts of the day, Of course they had read it. He's using sarcasm. Isn't that interesting? We don't tend to think of Jesus using sarcasm like that. But of course they had read it. He said, haven't you read? Well, they hadn't applied what they had read. They had distorted it, twisted it. Uh, It's interesting to think of our Lord 
uh, ministering that way. It's very, very impactful. It tells me, by the way, that sarcasm isn't always wrong because Jesus is not, he's not, he didn't sin, right? Of course, sarcasm can be wrong if you use it in the wrong way. I understand that too. But it's interesting to me also because Jesus is God. And he could have said, because I said so. And that would settle it, right? I'm God, I said so. <laughs> That's the end of the matter. I think it's interesting that Jesus stood on the written word as his ultimate standard. And I think that's an example for us because we can't say I'm God and I said so, but we can say God has said in his word and that settles the matter. Well, you can think of the culture war that's going on today a bit like these two cities. You've got the city of God and the city of man. City of God, Christianity, based on creation, God's word is truth. You've got the city of man, secular humanism, based on evolution, man independent from God determines truth. And how are we fighting this war? Perhaps not as effectively as we could be. We're arguing over issues that really aren't that important. We're shooting some of these billboards, and that's okay. We can point out that you know, uh, you know, racism's wrong, abortion's wrong, and so on. We can do that. But if that's all we're doing, we're just alleviating symptoms. We're not dealing with the root of the problem. Those issues are going to keep coming, right? Because we haven't dealt with the actual problem, which is down here. A belief in evolution, a belief that we can determine truth by ourselves. We don't need to answer to God for that. Of course, the worst thing we could be doing is shooting our own foundation, which represents Christians who say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis. Zap. You can, you can believe in millions of years of evolution as long as you think God did it. Well, if that's true, then God's lied to us about how he did it. Of course, the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. You can't trust the Bible. We know from science millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. That's what they claim. Now, of course, the science doesn't indicate that. Don't get me wrong. That's what we do at ICR. We show how science confirms God's word. But that's what they claim. So what's the solution then? It's okay to keep hitting billboards. We should, we should do some of that. But we should also defend ourselves from these arguments that evolutionists make that are not good arguments. We need to expose the absurdity in some of those arguments, the ones that are logically fallacious or simply based on false information. We need to do some damage down here as well and point out evolution is not good science. It, it, scientifically, it is simply a bankrupt conjecture. That's all it is. It's not something that's well supported by ob observational science. You don't see evolution happening today, not in the molecules demand sense. We don't find that. We don't find good evidence for that. We do find that science confirms creation. And many of the resources that we produce at ICR are along those lines, showing you how when you understand science, it confirms biblical creation. This should be our foundation right here. God's word really is true from the beginning. In fact, it's God's word that makes science possible. That's something to think about. The fact that God upholds the universe in a consistent way that our minds are able to partially understand, that's what makes science possible. And I like how this is illustrated. You notice we're not aiming at people. We don't, we're, we, the people there, we, we want them to be saved. We're, we're shooting at that, that city which, illust, which indicates or um, symbolizes the idea of secular humanism based on evolution. We want to destroy that stronghold because it's something that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We want to cast that down. We want the people to jump off and swim over and join us on the uh, city of uh, Christianity. And we're not bashful about that. We want people to be saved. That is our goal at ICR. It really is. You know, there are some organizations, I'm sorry to say, that, that would say, yeah, they probably have a lot of Christians in them, but they say, well, oh, yes, but we don't, you know, we're not on about the Bible. We just, we're just, you know, we just want to show you that God exists. Well, the demons believe in God and tremble. It doesn't save them. We want people to be saved. 
And frankly, if the Bible really is the word of God, why would you leave that out of the conversation? Oh, but so-and-so doesn't believe the Bible. Well, that's his problem, right? If somebody said, I don't believe in air, would you hold your breath so as not to offend them? Of course not. You'd say, well, actually, you're, you're breathing yourself, so of course you believe in it. It's, you know, it's the same way with Scripture. You'd say, well, actually, you're relying on things that only make sense if the Bible's true. Well, what about the time scale of creation? That's something where there's some controversy. There really shouldn't be, but it seems like there is. The Bible says that God created in six days. It tells us what he did on each of those days of creation. Human beings, and land animals for that matter, are made on day six of the creation week, Right? And, and we know that that's a few thousand years ago that Adam was created because, again, you can add up those genealogies, the ages there, and you get something like 4,000 years between Adam and Christ, Christ's earthly ministry, and uh, 2,000 years since then. So something like 6,000 years. Maybe can't get an exact date, but around there. It's certainly not going to be millions or billions of years, right? And that's the place where people say, oh, come on. You really you believe the universe is 6,000 years old? Well, yes, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. But they say, oh, no, we know it's 13.8 billion years old. It exploded into existence in a big bang and, and earth formed later. Earth's 4.5 billion years old and, and so on. And you'll find this in the textbooks, right? I mean, you'll find, you know, the fossils are deposited over hundreds of millions of years. And, and there it is in the textbooks, right? Millions of years. Got to be true. It's in the textbooks. Hmm. Well, Christians get intimidated by that. And they think, well, yeah, I mean, all these scientists, secular scientists, believe in millions of years. So maybe God created over hundreds of millions of years and the fossils are millions of years old. We get intimidated. Of course, you'd never get that from reading the Bible. You just read the Bible, you get, you'd conclude thousands of years, something like 6,000. But we get intimidated and we feel like we have to fit the millions of years into the Bible somehow. So where are you going to do it? Where are you going to add the millions of years? Now you can't do it between Adam and Christ because there, there's genealogies uh, it would destroy those, right? You can't say, and so-and-so beget so-and-so, and then a million years later, they beget so-and-so. That's not going to work. There's just not that many generations between Adam and Christ. You can't stretch that out. People say, well, maybe there's gaps in the genealogies. I don't, think that's, I don't think there's good evidence for that. But even if there were, you certainly can't stretch it out to 4.5 billion years. We all agree human beings don't go back millions and millions of years. But there's only six days before humans, right? Humans are made on day six, so people try to put the millions of years into the creation week because that's the only place they can think to do it. And there's a few different ways they try to put the millions of years into the creation week. Uh, some of them will say, well, maybe the millions of years happens before the beginning. And that's pretty easy to refute, right? Because if the millions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning. Yeah, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Or maybe there's a gap in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That doesn't work on the basis of Hebrew grammar. We may come back to that, time permitting. But uh, yeah, that's not, that's not workable either. One of the most common I want to focus in on is the idea that maybe the days weren't really days. Maybe God meant to say that he created in six ages. But he, for some reason he used the word day. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting idea, right? I mean, some, some people have said, well, there isn't, a word, there isn't a word for age in Hebrew, which is not true. There are several words for a long age in Hebrew, like olam, for example, um, that God could have used if he'd meant to indicate ages. But it's kind of a strange concept. Well, God forgot to make a word for long age, and so he just used day and hoped that we'd figure it out. Um, that's kind of the attitude. I mean, they wouldn't say it that way, but that kind of is the attitude that they have. Make those days vast ages. By the way, the order is different. So even if you did make the days millions of years, 
the order of the, that the Bible gives is different than the order for the secular worldview. In the secular worldview, fish evolved before fruit trees, but according to the Bible, fruit trees are day three, fish are day five. The order's different. According to the Big Bang, stars formed very early on and then the earth billions of years later. According to Genesis, earth's made on day one, stars are made on day four. So you see, even if you stretched out the days, it doesn't help you line up the Bible with the secular time scale. You can't do it. But people say, oh, but, you know, we got to make those days long to get the millions of years in there, right? Because we know the world's millions, millions and millions of years old. And, uh, of course, there's no scriptural support for that. But people will pull certain scriptures out of context to try and support that idea. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, but Dr. Lyle, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.8 that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, Right? So those days might have been, you know, they might have been a thousand years each. Very long periods of time. It's funny, they only quote the first part of the verse. What does the rest of the verse say? One day is what the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Cancels that right out, you see. It goes the other direction. I find people only take the first part out of context to make time longer. They never take the second part out of context to make time shorter, right? Nobody says, well... You know, the Bible indicates about 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ's earthly ministry, but 1,000 years is as a day, so it was really only two days between Abraham and Christ's earthly ministry. Nobody does that. That would be ridiculous. Well, if that's ridiculous, then so is taking the first part out of context to do it the other way. And by the way, this isn't saying a day is 1,000 years. It's saying it's like that or as that to God. It's a simile comparing two things using like or as. We understand that. And so it's not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see it in scripture to a thousand years, which by the way, would not get you anywhere, right? I mean, if you, it would make the earth 12,000 years old instead of 6,000. It doesn't get you anywhere close to the millions or billions of years that people think they need to add to the scriptures. Really what this verse is telling us is that God is beyond time. Therefore, whenever God uses time language, it is always for our benefit and to be understood on our terms. God's beyond time. Now he can step into time, which he's done, of course, and he can do what he wants, he's God. But God doesn't need a clock. We need clocks, right? Because we're within time and we need, we need that. God doesn't need that. He knows how to tell time. He really does. I think it's interesting that the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. And yet, the only place people question, what does day mean, is in Genesis. Especially Genesis chapter 1. Isn't that true? Do people sit around having Bible studies? Now, how long was Jonah really in the belly of the whale? Well, I think those were three ordinary days. Oh, I think they might have been 3,000 years, right? You might have been in there a very long time. No? People, they don't, they don't do that, do they? No wonder he repented. He was in there for 3,000 years. The whale's thinking, when is this guy going to pass? Man. <laughs> they don't do that. Of course, we understand it's three days, right? We get that. Oh, but Dr. Lyle, the Hebrew word for day can mean a period of time longer than 24 hours. And that's true in certain contexts, it can, but primarily in poetic literature and when part of a prepositional phrase, like in the day of the Lord. We, we understand that. But the, the, the main meaning of day, overwhelmingly in Scripture, the main, the main meaning of yom is day. That's what it means. Very clear. Even our English word for day can take on a secondary meaning in certain contexts indicating a period of time longer than 24 hours. We understand that. You might say, back in my father's day. Yeah, that would mean a period of time longer than 24 hours. I get that. Wouldn't mean millions of years, but it would be longer than 24 hours. Back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. 
So you got the word day used three times, and I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding it because you used context. You used the surrounding words to constrain the meaning. Back in my father's day, yeah, that would be a period of time longer than 24 hours. It took three days. Well, no, those would be 24-hour days, wouldn't they? Because it's got a number with it. It wouldn't make sense for that to be three periods of time. That wouldn't make sense. Three days to drive across Texas during the day. That would be the light portion of an ordinary day. It's a literal day. We understand that. It's very clear. And it's the same way in any language, really. All, really, pretty much every language, words can take on secondary meanings depending on context, and you use context to figure out which meaning is in play. It's true in Hebrew as well. And so let's take a look at the Hebrew word for day, yom, outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree what it means. No dispute about how long Jonah was in the belly of the whale. We get that. We find, for example, that when the word day, yom, is used with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, it is always translated day. Always. Very clearly means day in all the historical narrative sections of the Bible. Of course, if I said, you know, on the third day or on the fourth day, you'd understand I'm talking about ordinary days because it's got that number with it. If I said uh, there was evening and morning, even if the word day is not there, What's an evening and a morning? Today, yeah, exactly. And that happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1, and we all agree that's an ordinary day. If I said there was evening that day, you'd know I'm talking about an ordinary day, so evening with day. Or if I said there was morning that day, morning with day, you'd understand I'm talking about an ordinary day. And that happens 23 times each outside of Genesis 1. We all agree it's an ordinary day. Or if I said there was day, then there was night. So day and night together, we understand that's an ordinary day because it's followed by night. We understand that. It happens over 50 times outside Genesis 1. We all agree that's an ordinary day. No, no problem there. Well, let's apply these contextual clues to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said day. So we got Genesis 1, verse 5, and God called the light day. So there he's defining it for you. Day is when it's light out. That would be an ordinary day, wouldn't it? And the darkness he called night, you have night associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You've got uh, evening associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You've got morning associated with day. Got to be an ordinary day. You've got evening and morning together. That's got to be an ordinary day. And you've got a number with it. First, got to be an ordinary day. Pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, can there be any doubt that first day was an ordinary day? God used about every textual indicator he could have used. It's pretty clear. Well, what about the other days of creation? Let's have a look here. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 I think I'm sensing the pattern here. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty clear. Kind of like God saying, see, they're ordinary days. And in case you still don't get it, the ordinary days. And in case you're a little thick, the ordinary days. In case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days. Now, some people have said, oh, but Dr. Lyle, the sun wasn't made into the fourth day. But that's irrelevant. It really is. You see, it's primarily the rotation of the earth that determines the length of the day. The sun doesn't have much to do with it. As long as you have a rotating planet and a light source, you're going to have ordinary days, days and nights. Did we have a light source on the first day? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We had a light source. God doesn't tell us what it was. It was a temporary light source for those first three days. God separated the light from the darkness. Did we have a rotating planet? Sure, evening and morning, first day. You're going to have ordinary days. And then God replaced that temporary light source with the sun on day four. And uh, I think he had reasons for doing that. Probably one of them, you know, a lot of ancient cultures worship the sun as the source of life. And God's saying, no, I'm the primary source of life. That's what God's saying. The sun, that's just something that I made. So he displaces it to day four. 
He doesn't even call it by name. It's just it's the greater light. It's an object that he made. It's not, it's not to be deified. Where do we get the idea of a week? This idea of seven days in a week, where does that come from? Did you know all, yeah, it does. It comes from Genesis. All the other units of time have a basis in astronomy, but not a week. A week is how long it took for God to create and rest. There's no other basis for it. A day comes from astronomy. That's a rotation of Earth on its axis. A month, astronomy. It comes from how long it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's where we get the word month. That is a month. Uh, years, the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun, also from astronomy. But where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? Not from astronomy. That's how long it took for God to create and rest. And the Bible specifically says that in Exodus 20, 11. Exodus 20, you remember that chapter, that's the Ten Commandments. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You read on, it, so he, gives, he explains, he says, in six days you'll do all your labor, the seventh is the Lord's. Then he gives the explanation in verse 11 for why we are to work six days and rest one. It's because for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. That's the way God did it. Using the same word for day, by the way, and it's the plural form, which yamem, which is always, always um, ordinary days. And so God says, you work six days and rest one because I worked six days and rest one. So if God really had, if those days really were millions of years, we'd have an awfully long work week, wouldn't we? You'd never make it to the weekend. Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day and saying God really made everything in one day because they, they had their philosophy and they were trying to interpret the Bible according to that. I love how Martin Luther responds to this. He says, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. I love this last part. He says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. (laughs) Well, my next question is, does it matter? Does this whole issue of millions of years versus thousands really matter? Historically, what happened is the secular scientists came along and said, the Bible's not true. The earth's millions of years old. We, We know these rock layers were deposited over hundreds of millions of years. Of course, they don't know that. They weren't there to, to see it. They're making certain assumptions about rates and things like that. But anyway, a lot, of, a lot of the theologians, not all of them, but a lot of them got intimidated by that and thought, well, you know, it's not a salvation issue, so maybe we can allow for the millions of years. Maybe we can interpret the Bible in such a way as to allow for that because we don't want it to be a stumbling block. And I think they had the best of intentions, but that doesn't make what they did right. Is it a salvation issue? Well, not in the sense that you have to believe in six days to be saved, right? I I understand we're saved by God's grace, received through faith in Christ, not through having perfect theology. I understand that. That being said, out of gratitude for our salvation, we ought to try and correct our theology, right, and get get it to line up with Scripture. So I would say it's not a salvation issue in the sense that it's required for salvation, but it is an important issue. The way I like to put it, it's kind of like gravity. Gravity is not a salvation issue, but wouldn't you agree it's an important issue? You cannot believe in gravity and still go to heaven. You'll probably get there a lot quicker that way, right? It's not a salvation issue. But it is an important issue. It's important for many reasons. I'm going to give two. First of all, it's important because it's what the Bible teaches, right? I mean, we're not to treat the Bible like a buffet where we just pick the portions we want and then the other, eh, I'll pass on that. It's all God's word. We better believe it. I think it's interesting too, the section of God's word that says in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, that's part of the Ten Commandments. That was written in stone by the finger of God. 
all scriptures inspired by God. We need to take it all seriously. But I think it's interesting that the section of God's word that people most want to distort is the section where God did not even use a human agent. He wrote it himself with his own finger in stone. We better take that seriously. See, the same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches a virgin birth for Christ, that Jesus turned water into wine, walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, raised himself from the dead. Same Bible teaches all those things. You say, yes, but most scientists say six days of creation, that's not possible, so I'm going to reinterpret that as, as vast ages. I got news for you. Most scientists would say virgin birth, not possible. Water into wine, not possible. Walking on water, not possible. Resurrection, not possible. You see, you'd have to reinterpret those sections too to be logically consistent. You'd have to say, well, that's just symbolic for something else. Ah, and of course, the resurrection of Christ, that is a salvation issue. If Christ is not raised. You're still in your sins. Your faith is in vain. The Apostle Paul said it just that way. People say, oh, but no, no, I want to believe, I believe these portions. But you see, you're not being consistent, Right? Are you going to allow people who reject God's word to tell you how you ought to interpret God's word? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Now, some people have said, but Dr. Lau, these things over here, those are miracles. So, you know, you don't have to apply science to those. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Wasn't creation? Wasn't that a miracle? If it's not, I'd like to see you do it. There's another reason why we don't want to add in the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the world. And we do find fossils everywhere, all over the Earth's surface, on continents, fossils that have been deposited by water, hmm. marine organisms mixed with land organisms, on the continents. What would account for that? Worldwide flood would account for that, wouldn't it? But you see, secularists believe that these fossils were deposited gradually over hundreds of millions of years. They don't believe in the worldwide flood. Now, if you say, yeah, I think maybe those fossils are hundreds of millions of years old. If you believe that, you've got a huge theological problem. You say, oh, but I don't believe in evolution. I just think God created over hundreds of millions of years, and these fossils are millions of years old. You've got a huge theological problem because, you see, a fossil is a dead thing. And if you got death 100 million years ago, you've got death before Adam sinned. In fact, you've got death before Adam existed because we all agree human beings don't go back hundreds of millions of years. But doesn't the Bible say that death came into the world as a result of man's sin? Isn't the Bible pretty clear about that? By man came death? Huh. But according to millions of years, it's by death came man. Those two positions are logically contrary to each other. They can't both be true. It's either by death came man or by man came death. Can't have it both ways. Here you have a Garden of Eden, Eve saying, God's creation is perfect. And Adam's saying, God said it's very good and he is right. Look at this wonderful world. And by the way, people think it's just the Garden of Eden. It wasn't. The Bible says God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Now, my point is this. If those fossils are hundreds of millions of years old and God was progressively creating over hundreds of millions of years of death, and suffering and so on, animals killing other animals, and he finally gets around to creating the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, looks at everything, oh, it's very good. Then that means the Garden of Eden is sitting on top of millions of years worth of fossils, disease, death, and so on. Yeah, God's calling that very good. You know, we find fossils with evidence of disease in them, things like arthritis, cancer even. Now, was that already part of the world when God looked at it and said, oh, it's very good? You see, if you believe the fossils are hundreds of millions of years old, your answer has to be yeah. Cancer and arthritis and death and suffering, those things are part of God's very good creation. You see the inconsistency? You see, if death 
really preceded Adam. If it came before he sinned, then that means death is not the penalty for sin. And if death is not the penalty for sin, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? All of Christianity depends on death being the penalty for sin, that it came into the world as a result of Adam's sin. Now, some people have said, oh, I think that's just human death, Dr. Lyle, that entered the world when Adam sinned. I think animals were already living and dying because, you know, we, th- we think these fossils are hundreds of millions of years old. But, you know, I don't think you can defend that scripturally. Because if you think about it, when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them, the next thing he did then was he killed an animal or animals to provide skins of clothing for Adam and Eve. God instituted animal death as a result of Adam's sin. Animal death that was initiated at that point, you see. And so people say, well, that's, that doesn't seem fair that animals have to die as a result of Adam's sin. Well, I understand that, but it's logical because you see, God gave Adam dominion over the world. And that means his sin affected everything under his authority, right? When you're in charge of something and you mess up, the people under your authority are affected by that, not for the better. When our president does something stupid, we all suffer as a result of it. Isn't that right? Now, some people have said, I've got you here, Dr. Lau, because we know there was plant death before Adam and Eve sinned, right? So you had to have death of plants because they were eating plants, right? Well... The interesting thing about that is, biblically, plants are not classified as alive, and therefore they cannot die under the biblical definition of life and death. You see, the the biblical word for life, nephesh, or nephesh kai, living creature, it applies to human beings, it applies to animals, it does not apply to plants. Plants are never referred to in scripture as nephesh kai, living creatures, they're not. Plants are biological machines that are designed to produce food for us to eat. They're not alive not in the same way that, that animals are. And of course, I understand biologists classify plants as living. That's fine. They're using a little different definition there. I get that. But my point is, it, it's not life in the biblical sense. You can talk about a dead plant. That's kind of poetic, right? You can talk about a dead battery. It doesn't mean it was ever really alive, not literally, right? You know that. You come across a so-called dead tree. You say, well, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it on my mantle. If you come across a dead animal, you say, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it on my mantle. That's different, isn't it? Yeah. We understand that. Animal death is an intrusion into a world that was once perfect. But, you know, I can imagine that in the eternal state. It'll be a plant cycle again, presumably. No, the Bible makes it clear the world was very good when God first created it, but now It's been affected by sin. We live in a fallen world, a world that's cursed by sin. And it'll be made perfect again as a result of Christ's obedience. You see, if you compromise and you say, well, I think God created over hundreds of millions of years of death and suffering, you cannot account for the problem of suffering and death in this world. If God created over millions of years of death and suffering, then when someone dies, it really is God's fault. But you see, scripturally, it's not God's fault. Scripturally, it's our fault. We rebelled against God. God told us what would happen if we sinned. Death would enter the world. He told us the penalty. And we said, yeah, that's what we want. We want to rebel against you. We're going to determine truth for ourselves. That's what Adam was effectively saying when he took of the fruit that God commanded him not to eat of. And so we need to remember when someone dies, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. And we all deserve death. And in fact, we've sinned against an infinitely holy God. We deserve an infinite death. It's only by God's grace that you take your next breath. You don't deserve it. If we live in a very entitled culture, right? Especially the millennials. Oh, we deserve this. We deserve that. No, what you deserve is death and hell. Anything better than that is by God's grace. Well, I'm going to have to skip some of these or we'll be here for millions of years. 
<laughs> I want to sum it up with this cross series. The church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. That's the right message. We want to be preaching that, of course. But there's been an attack in the form of millions of years. And that impacts. And we say, oh yeah. You know what our response to that is generally? Well, that's a miss. That didn't hit the cross. That's not a salvation issue. We don't have to worry about millions of years. Right? That's a secondary or tertiary issue. What we fail to realize is that millions of years is an attack on Genesis. Because if millions of years is true, then the Genesis history is not. And Genesis history is what makes sense of the gospel message. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross, saying, eh, there was no Jesus, or there was no resurrection, oh, we'd be concerned about that. We understand that's a salvation issue. That's important. We need to defend that. We should. But you see, my point is Satan's crafty. He's aiming at our foundation. Our foundation, and we think it's just a side issue. It's not. It's a biblical authority issue. When people say God's word is false, we ought to say, wait a minute, no. I'm going to defend God's word from the very beginning. It's not a side issue. And then historically, all these different attacks came. Naturalism, evolution, eight men, millions of years, no global flood, and they impact. And our, our thinking is, hey, it's a miss. Didn't hit the cross. Don't have to worry about it. Not a salvation issue. But really, it was a direct hit. And what is the result of all these different attacks on Genesis? The result is unbelief. Just like Jesus put it, right? He says, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And so then these different symptoms happen. Newsflash, prayers outlawed in schools. And we say, hey, trust in Jesus, which we should do, but my point is we're not dealing with the problem. Newsflash, creation outlawed in schools. And we say, hey, Jesus is going to return. Uh, yeah, he is, but he commanded us to do some things in the meantime, like defend the faith, right? Newsflash, the Bible's outlawed in schools. And we say, oh, let's get the Bible back into schools. And I want to be careful what I, what I say here because I'm all for doing politically what we can. I understand that. But that's not the way ultimately we're going to win back the culture, not through politics. It's going to be through the gospel. That's <laughs> really what's good. See, democracy only works if the majority of people are good or trying to follow God's law, right? Because democracy simply enforces the will of the majority. If the majority of people are evil, you're going to have an evil nation. That's what it comes down to. Even if you get the right person in office, it doesn't matter. Uh, Newsflash, Ten Commandments outlawed in schools. And we say, hey, let's concentrate on worship. You know, the church can be doing a lot of good things, but if we're not defending the faith, then what's happened is the gospel has become obscured by unbelief because people have rejected Genesis, and the gospel makes no, no sense apart from Genesis. So what's the solution? Well, we at ICR want to come alongside the church of course, we're a parachurch ministry, but all of us at ICR are members of our own local church body. We're all Christians. We want to come alongside the church as a ministry, repair the damage that's been done, and show you that when these attacks come, we want to warn you, these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then we show you how to refute all these different issues. That's why we produce the resources that we produce. That's what we do. We refute these nonsense arguments about millions of years of evolution and so on, primarily on the scientific side. We show you that the science doesn't line up with that. And then ultimately, of course, we'd like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to recognize that these are issues that they need to be able to deal with, and we want everyone in the church to be able to refute these issues. And it doesn't, it doesn't take a PhD to do it. It, just, it helps to know some basic information, and then you can defend the faith against those issues, and then, people can, then the church can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross, and be saved. And people say, oh, I get it now, I understand. It's because 
Adam. Adam is a real person in history. God's infinitely holy. One sin ruined the world. I need a savior. I can trust the Bible. It really is trustworthy. I can see now how science uh, confirms Genesis. Of course, we've got other pres- I've got other presentations I do on that topic. I didn't want to do that this morning because I want to show you how important the issue is this morning. Well, we have a lot of resources that I would encourage you to get on this topic. Uh, this presentation is now available on DVD. We don't have it here, but you can back order it. Okay, just tell them you want your origins matter, and we'll ship it to you for free if you back order it today. Does that sound good? So maybe you're thinking, well, I wish somebody were, had come here. They needed to hear this. Well, you can bring it to them on DVD. The book I have, if you want to learn how to defend a literal understanding of Genesis, a historical understanding of it, Understanding Genesis is going to show you how to defend the faith against those people, well-meaning Christians, who say, well, yes, but I don't think Genesis is real history, or I think the days might be millions of years. That book's going to show you how you can conclusively refute those ideas and show that the Bible really does mean what it says. If you want some of the scientific information, Creation Basics and Beyond, written by all of our staff scientists at ICR. It's going to answer all your questions about creation and evolution, like was there an ice age? And what about plate tectonics or continental drift? Did that really happen? And if so, when? And how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? And where did the water for the flood come from? And where did it go? And what about ape men or cavemen for that matter? And uh, what about distant starlight? How do you get that here in the biblical timescale? All answered in that book. We keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. It's very readable, but it's also rigorous enough. You can, you can defend it. And if you say, I don't know, that looks awfully thick and intimidating, we have a student version as well. You can get the student version. Creation, that's called Guide to Creation Basics. You say, I want a bulletproof argument that I can memorize that just destroys evolution. I got, I got one for you. It's called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And it's exactly what, it, it delivers on what it promises. It's a different kind of argument than you've probably heard before. And you don't have to know a lot about science to use this. Very powerful. Very powerful. I've, I've had teenagers that have read this book and they get it and they can defend the faith amazingly well. That's the one. In fact, I wish every student would get that book. It's really very powerful. Discerning Truth, How to Spot Logical Fallacies and Arguments. That's helpful. Uh, we have DVDs, Created Cosmos, takes you on a tour of the universe. I got another one called Astronomy Reveals Creation, where I show how astronomy reveals creation and not a big bang or billions of years. The Secret Code of Creation shows you that God has built in beauty and complexity in an aspect of creation you've probably never even thought about. And there's absolutely no secular explanation for it. This is an amazing DVD. Uh, it's pretty mind-blowing. We've got books on dinosaurs, Dinosaurs, Marvels of God's Design, written by Dr. Tim Clary, a dinosaur expert and a biblical creationist like myself. Books on astronomy, The Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, How to Better Enjoy the Night Sky from a Christian Perspective. That's kind of a, a, a unique book, isn't it? Star charts and you say I don't have a telescope, doesn't matter. Lots of stuff you can see naked eye. If you want to get a telescope, they'll tell you what kind you might want to get. Taking back astronomy, this is the more apologetic one. This is one that's going to show you how the universe declares God's glory, not a big bang or billions of years. That's the one you want to read and give to your, your secular friends. Uh, we have Acts and Facts magazine. This is our beautiful uh, full-color monthly magazine. It's totally free. Totally free. How many of you are already getting Acts and Facts magazine? Just a very few. Okay, the rest of you need to repent of that sin and sign up in the lobby. It's, uh, it really is totally free. There's no catch. Not too many things free in this world, right? Just uh, acts and facts and salvation. Check us out on the web, icr.org. And let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together this morning, Lord, with their or anyone, if there's anyone here who's questioning whether or not your word is true, I pray that the information today will be a blessing to them and challenge them to think through these issues and, and to have confidence that your word really is true. 
And that for the rest of us who are already saved and understand that your word is true, I pray that this will embolden people to go out and share your word with others, Lord, because we want people to be saved. That's what we're all about. And Lord, I pray that this message just, again, is just an encouragement to people that it, 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 that it gets us all excited about our faith. It re-energizes our faith in you. We know that your word is true from the beginning, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your salvation, Lord. We pray that you bless the rest of this day, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.